Welcome to Race Trader, a podcast where we trade ideas on race by way of discussing film. I'm your host, Boston. And I'm Jay. This episode, we will be discussing A Time to Kill, directed by Joel Schumacher in 1996. Spoilers ahead. If you haven't seen A Time to Kill, pause this episode and watch it. Next episode, we'll be covering The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You can drop us a line at bostonnj at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. Make sure you subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have a special guest on today. He has been on before. Welcome again back to the pod, Gary. Thank you very much for having me, gentlemen. Since this episode touches a little closer to my actual business, I will give the old uh, Twitter disclaimer. All of these are my personal views, even though you don't know exactly who I am. You do know who I am. I only speak for myself. And uh, yeah, I think, Boston, you decided to uh, cover a Time to Kill specifically in the wake of the Derek Chauvin trial and why this movie? Almost every day after work during the Chauvin trial, I spent maybe three or four hours reviewing the trial on YouTube because every the whole entire trial is on YouTube. So I'd get done from work, watch the trial, and I was like, wouldn't it be fascinating if we did a courtroom drama, not exactly synonymous with the Chauvin situation, but I thought it would be fascinating that we did a courtroom drama. And Gary and I both have some legal background. So talking about A Time to Kill and also dissecting it, not only from a racial angle, but also from a legal angle, I think would be a fascinating discussion. Yeah. Gary, what were your initial takes with this movie? When did you first see it? How was it upon rewatch? All that. All right. So the first time I saw this movie was actually when it was in its first run in 1996 and i saw it in probably the most interesting way one could i saw it on the south side of chicago in a theater full of black people who were hollering at the screen and cheering along with samuel l jackson uh which really added a lot to the experience i'm from gary and i'm used to being around lots of black people at the movie theater but the, like the south side of chicago is like an extra layer i felt like i was in like a uh, a skit from a movie you know, with all of the screen yelling and such. Uh, I'd say the closest it's like, is like, have you ever gone to like the Rocky Horror Picture Show? That's how interactive it was. Right. Uh, yeah. So I saw it the one time back in 96 at the theater. I had not seen it uh, until I watched again, actually today. You know, I remembered the, the main beats of it, but I didn't have a, uh, what I'd say, like a really blow by blow memory of it. So it was, uh, it was definitely interesting to see it again. And obviously when I saw it the first time I was a teenager and now seeing it, you know, I'm someone who's practiced law for you know, over a decade. So I definitely have different opinions about it now than I did as far as some of the technical stuff, but it was still an interesting movie. And the, uh, the one thing I will say that does not change is I remember laughing about it as a teenager going, why is everybody so sweaty? And they're still <laughs> yeah. sweaty you know, all these years later. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, shout outs to a Ashley Judd for really pulling that off. Yeah, she was just glistening the whole movie every time she actually <laughs> yeah. said, she It's like she came out of the sweat. pool with her hair like done up. <laughs> so I remember seeing this movie like Gary in the movie theater. And the movie theater experience in Boston, Massachusetts is a little different than the south side of Chicago. But I remember having a lot of the same <laughs> feelings. John Grisham movies, particularly ones like this, are pure emotion. Pure emotional roller coasters, that's what they're meant to be. You're, you're, you're meant to see something outrageous and react in real time. 
and he pulls that off. That was my initial experience, and and that's the same experience that I had. Like Gary said, practicing law for a number of years, I think that I began to hone in a little bit more on the technical stuff, the the technical legal stuff that was going on that probably wouldn't pass the smell test in most major northeastern cities. But I don't know. Maybe it's like that in Mississippi. I don't know. I do think that a lot of John Grisham's movies tend to be a little hyperbolic when it comes to the legal system, while his books tend to be a little bit more realistic. And John Grisham was an attorney for a while, so he does have some experience in the legal system. So I would imagine that, you know, the movies are taking his his legal analysis to a more Hollywood level. And that kind of makes sense because he does they don't have the space to get into the weeds. Yeah. Uh, my first experience with this movie, different than yours, you know, I was still in middle school when this came out. So I wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies at this point. So I, my first experience seeing this was on TV, uh, edited, but I really loved it. Like I remember at, around the same time I watched like Lean on Me on television. I watched The Green Mile probably around the same time. I know they all came out at different times, but being on TV, all these movies kind of exist at the same time. Or another John Grisham uh, movie, The Firm, I also saw around the same time. So, you know, I was delighted to see that this movie was just as entertaining as it entertained me in middle school. I liked that upon rewatching it, you know, for the first time in some time. I mean, I probably had seen it in between unedited. I can't recall when, at some point, probably in college or, or high school, but I feel like of the white people in the movie who weren't necessarily racist, right? They were honest with the length of time it took for some people to get what Matthew McConaughey's intentions were, maybe. Like I liked like Ashley Judd's, uh, I forget her name in the movie, but I like her um, reticence that was expressed. It wasn't just inherently assumed, well, racism's wrong and we shouldn't do this. There was more nuance than I was expecting to come into it with this type of movie. I mean, the diner that Jake and Harry Rex sit in for parts of the movie is this like all white diner. And in the backdrop is a little Confederate flag. And the movie does a good job of an honest recitation of what it might be like to be in this middle of nowhere Mississippi town where you have these clear lines of delineation that this is where the black people are, this is where the white people are, and that the two shouldn't meet, right? Like, it's just kind of like, this is where these people are, and these are parallel lines that should remain parallel forever, even in the courtroom. Um, and, yeah, it and looked the, like a wedding reception where like one family was on the left side and one was on the right. And in the backdrop is Jefferson Davis on a horse, the president of the Confederacy. The one thing about the Confederate flag is remember until this very, uh, it was either this year or late 2020, that was part of the Mississippi state flag. So I'm not surprised to see it up since they, they incorporated it right into the state flag. Yeah, it was uh, flowing in the wind at the very end of the movie. Yeah. You know, it's weird, though, with, like, courtroom dramas for me. Like, ever since I saw The Wire, like, unless you're coming at this content with this ultra-realism that we might take for granted more, this movie still holds up really well as entertaining. I mean, it's a star-studded cast, for sure. Everyone during this time, 
was either about to blow up or had already uh, done so. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like a purposeful emotional roller coaster, as like you kind of put it, Boston. And it was also nice to see Samuel Jackson not playing that role. He eventually just became himself in every movie, mm-hmm. with the exception of a few things. But it was nice to see like some dimensional full acting with Samuel L. Jackson. Is this movie still relevant in 2021? I would say it is, because if you think about the, the dilemma here, in some ways, I think that the Samuel L. Jackson character might be in deeper due in this year than he was back then. In 1996, there was this whole idea that, hey, we're making progress and things are getting better in New South. But now it's really, it's been full on reaction. You know, it's been, we're going back to the good old days. We've got people putting in Jim Crow rhetoric and voter restriction. I think now the jury would have been like, convict him. They would have <laughs> convicted him and went on home. They would have like, put their red hats on, jumped in their pickup trucks and went home. You know, Because, like, you know, that's the thing about racial progress in America is it's always met with reaction and backtracking. So, you know, it's like it's literally for every two steps forward, you end up having to take a step back at some point. I mean, you still end up ahead of where you were, but it's not, it's not a smooth, linear progress. So I think it is still relevant. The, the idea that this guy uh, flat out killed these guys and walked on it is interesting because if you look at it, I mean, he was guilty of sin. It's like the the mentor lawyer said, you know, the guy played by Donald Sutherland, he goes, it's kind of a unique opportunity because if you win, justice is served. If you lose, justice is served. And I, I thought that was maybe my favorite line of the whole movie because I really connect with that. I mean, it's like, he did it in front of a lot of witnesses. So you couldn't really be mad if he got convicted. And amputated a cop's leg in the process. <laughs> which, which they didn't charge him for. Like, in, no, they in, did. It was in the indictment. The judge read it. Oh, so it was. But for the audience who might not know, what the jury did in this case is called jury nullification, right? Where the jury just says, I don't care what the law is. I'm ignoring it. I'm making my own decision. So... I thought, well, if that's the third count of a three-count indictment, right, where you have the the murder of the first guy, the murder of the second guy, and the shooting of the cop. They charged him with attempted murder for the cop. It was an attempted murder of a peace officer is what judge – and can I just stop for one second and just say it? I, I did not remember the damn judge's name <laughs> was uh... – Judge Noose. <laughs> judge Noose. I mean, like, he was a hang'em judge. <laughs> I would say that one of the ways maybe that this movie loses relevancy for me is that, I mean, as a whole, and I think that racial dialogue has progressed to be a little more nuanced and open for discussion these days, where growing up, I remember as a white dude, I loved watching like Law and Order with my parents and things like that, right? Or like X-Files or Mm -hmm. these types of procedural type shows that often involve courtrooms. Mm-hmm. And I always loved the cult episodes and I always loved the KKK episodes because I just loved seeing these crazies get their comeuppance, right? And I feel like if your primary racial analysis remains at that level where I'm not racist, I'm not part of the KKK, it's kind of like losing sight of the ramifications and echoes of institutionalized racism, uh, how culpable 
are we all? The conversation's gotten so complicated, but I think one of the issues with John Grisham, outside of making really entertaining movies, as books tend to, you always have a clear good guy and a clear bad guy. And it's again, it's kind of like an opposed to the wire world in terms of cinema and shows and movies. These movies don't hold up as well. I'm going to push back on that. Harry Rex and Jake sitting in that diner, that all white diner with the Confederate flag and the backdrop talking about a case of a black man on death row because his daughter was raped by two white guys that he killed. They don't even get it, right? The two attorneys talking don't get it. And, and Jake doesn't get it until he goes and he sees Samuel L. Jackson and Samuel L. Jackson explains to him why he chose him as a lawyer, right? He chose him as a lawyer because of his ability to sit there surrounded by all of this racist stuff and be completely unaware of how he's participating in this. Like the way Samuel L. Jackson breaks it down is like, we're not on the same level. I know that. And no matter how much you pretend, you know that. Sandra Bullock points it out to him when she was like, I thought you were a liberal, right? But you're sneaking me off to this all black diner because you're afraid to be seen in public with me. So it's okay to hide your secrets with black people. Yeah, that's true. There's, I think there's a lot of really nuanced moments in this kind of really commercial movie. Okay. Like, would the KKK be as extreme as they were in this movie? Like, I yeah, feel like I mean, it, they're America's first terrorist group. I mean, if anything, the KKK in this movie is probably a little soft. If you think about it, like the fact that like, well, I guess just to make sure that I'm being understood here with this question, like when I saw Mississippi Burning, you know, obviously they both take place in Mississippi and deal with the Klan. I feel like the Klan's presence in that movie read to me with not much experience on the matter as more realistic as how they would act. Where here it may be at worst more cartoonish. That That's all. That's kind of what I'm saying. Putting everything in context, like as uh, Boston brought up from the beginning, is everything in this movie is very emotional and like clearly drawn characters. We have our good guys, every bad guys. Like it's very clear which cop is going to turn out to be the bad cop because he's like staring like <laughs> evilly in the background. So there's not like a sneaky movie. So with that said, it's hard to fault the clan for being cartoonish because basically everybody's cartoonish, you know? Right. Yeah, it's true. Uh, like. Like the preacher is cartoonishly the slate preacher, you know, the NAACP man is like a, it's a crook. Basically, everybody in this movie is a little shady except for a couple of good old uh, earnest people. The sheriff just likes to commit a little police brutality and dealing out justice, you know. Uh, <laughs> Carl Lee's just a hardworking guy at the mill who might have to murder some guys. <laughs> you know, and, and Jake is is a privileged lawyer with like the, you know, the best looking wife in Mississippi who just, you know, didn't really realize what was going on until it was time, you know, but so, but like, there's like a few people there, but like everyone else is sort of drawn as just like a cartoon character. Like, right. Like, how much depth does the secretary have? You know, she's just like the fussy secretary. <laughs> you know, like Basically everybody <laughs> is like, it's just a little sketch. So I'm not going to pick on him for making the clan also just a sketch. Like Kiefer Sutherland, we don't get his background story. We don't know how much he loved his brother. No, that's true. What do you think about the premise? And Gary, having done legal work, if you were sitting on the jury, do you send them to the gas chamber or do you convict? Um, looking at it, no, because 
it's interesting because this is actually where jury notification comes in is that people forget people have this I think not all people, but I think there's this sort of romantic notion that jury nullification is where like people come in to prevent the state's overreach. But I think this is actually a more realistic vision of jury nullification. I think most of the times where juries have nullified the history of America, it's been where the person was red-handed guilty and the community just didn't care to punish them. Mm. And okay. this is actually a good example. Now, most of the time where like the community has decided not to punish someone in the South, it's been some Klansman who murdered somebody. And they're like, yeah, well, you know what? That's just, that's just business. Whereas in this right. case, it was sort of the reverse of the normal Mississippi jury nullification. But I think this is actually kind of a good example of it. Is that everybody knew he did it. There wasn't any question <laughs> about it. I mean, he shot him in the courthouse, like right outside, <laughs> as, uh, as one of the dead guys, his mother said, like he was right outside of his door. But the jury heard everything. It was like, yeah, we don't care. And I think with that said, yeah, if I was sitting on the jury, I think I would have said, well, you know what? I don't care. Because the beauty of being on a jury is no one can do anything to you about your decision. Uh, you don't have to talk to anybody about it afterwards. The only way that you could even get in any trouble is if you go out and announce that you came to your verdict through some sort of specifically illegal way. Like if you were like, I came to this verdict due to my racial prejudice. You know, write that down. But other than that, do whatever you want. So, yeah, like if I were on this particular jury with this particular set of facts, I I don't think that convicting this guy, especially knowing they're trying to give him the death penalty, is a good move. Speaking of which, I think just strategically, going for the death penalty seems like a crazy choice to me in a case like this. Like, why would you be trying to go for the death penalty on a guy who is committing a pretty sympathetic crime? Well, I mean, I think the way they tried to paint the prosecutor, Kevin Spacey's character, was a guy who was doing this on pure ambition, playing on racial animus in Mississippi to escalate him or elevate him to the governor's mansion. Do you know what I mean? I think that Kevin Spacey is playing on pure ambition. You imagine, and this is just me working out the mechanics of this, there's a lot of things that went wrong even before you got to trial. You mean the defendant shot up the courthouse with that judge somewhere in the courthouse and you don't get a change of venue. Like, never <laughs> mind. Just so the audience knows, a change of venue is when you say that there is too much interest or it's too close to this community to get a fair trial. There's too many people involved in this so you can't get a fair trial. We need to move this trial outside of this venue because obviously the man shot up the courthouse he's being prosecuted in. That is a change of venue. Never mind. There's all these ex parte communications. Yeah, they never even discussed that. Like, when he <laughs> invites you over to the judge's house, which you can do. You can do the like the judge could invite you over. Like, you know, judges have called me, but there's always it's always made very clear that the other party knows about it. It's like you have to call like you you literally call the other lawyer. It's like, I am going to go talk to the judge now about this issue. Do I have your permission, generally? Like, and they they say yes, and then like the judge will and if it's possible, like the judge will put them on the phone if they're not going to be there themselves. You know, it's like, like it's definitely frowned upon to have private conversations without the other party in the litigation. But not, not, not this movie. We're just going to do it. Come on over to the house. <laughs> well, I imagine, I imagine, right? Like I haven't read any of it, but you have Boston. Like, does he provide those details more accurately in his books? No, the ex parte communications, and that's when 
there are two lawyers that are interested in a case, right? Prosecutor, criminal defense attorney, and the judge chooses to speak to one outside the presence of the other. That's highly illegal and unethical. Well, they can be done. You just have to give notice. You have to give notice. Yeah, I follow. Because there's also times where it's required. Like, for example, if you are making a motion that you that for something where you need to keep it secret from the other side let's say for example you like a protective order to protect a witness or something like you're not going to call the defense in and you're like i have a witness that i don't want you to know about but i just need you to know that i'm doing it so there's times where you're allowed to do things ex parte but those are like very specific things right and like and going to talk to the judge about like a possible disposition not one of those now it could be done but you would at least call the prosecutor and say hey, I'm having this guy over. I want to talk to him about a possible disposition. What do you say? Now, generally, because you don't want to make the judge mad, it's like they call you and ask you if you are okay with the ex parte. You go, oh, of course I am, judge. <laughs> or you would invite yourself over. That's the other thing. You say, oh, why don't I swing by too? You know, we could all chat together. Now, that's also a more common way to do it. But generally, yeah, you don't want to have unnoticed ex parte conversation. That, that would be bad. So there are movies and books that he does john gresham gets pretty accurate like i think rainmaker was one of those movies where he was pretty accurate and books where he was pretty accurate this one i think they just had to be sensational like in real life the judge isn't going to call the appellate court like that's all very hollywood john grisham and not technically accurate do you know what i mean but you know, I actually, I wonder about that, though. This is Mississippi, right? They, like, yeah. These judges do know each other. Like, let's assume old Judge Noose has been on the bench for 30 years down in Mississippi. He probably went to law school with the guy who sits on the, the next level appellate court. I wouldn't be surprised if he bumped into him at the golf course and said, hey, Ricky, let me run something past you. What if a guy asked <laughs> for a change of venue on, say, a cold-blooded double murder in the courthouse? And he said, huh, that's interesting. I mean, you know what? Let me think on that. He says, you know what? I think looking at people versus blah, 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 I think we'd let it ride. You know, but as long as you read it, you have to read it. Like, I, can, I actually can believe that because the law is, in the end, especially like when you start talking about like around your local courthouse, your counties and stuff, it gets pretty insular. Like a lot of these people know each other. I do think the mistake that Jake made in doing that is if he knew that the judge was going to deny his emotion because the problem initially was that the judge wasn't going to hear it at all. He gets the paper from Sandra Bullock's character and Sandra Bullock now f makes him aware that the judge has to hear it or else it's eligible for appeal. If you think that the judge is going to deny your motion because he doesn't want to hear it at all, don't bring it up. Say he didn't give you the opportunity to make the motion and you come back on appeal. You know, like absolutely, that's the best way to do it, not to forced the judge's hand and now you've lost the appellate issue you know yeah, what I mean? in real life the defense attorney would have like high-fived the clerk and been like all right <laughs> so if worse comes to worse at least we know we have a reversible error here exactly exactly so that's that's how i thought about it but i guess now we're really really into the weeds but here's the funny thing about it is in real life who would have told the judge that not the defense attorney the prosecutor would have walked up to the bench and said excuse <laughs> me your honor i just want to let you know that uh you really should hear him out on this, according to, you know, state versus so-and-so and state. Because actually, that's what people don't realize is that in practical matter, the person who has the most interest in the case coming through smoothly and nothing getting overturned is the prosecutor. So a lot of times, 
in an, in an actual trial, when the judge is about to do something illegal, the prosecutor slides in and is like, hey, judge, hold on. Like, I was once in a courtroom and saw a judge about to leave the bench to go to the bathroom without putting the court in a recess, and the prosecutor jumps out of the seat and says, judge, just want to remind you that if you left the bench without putting the court in a recess, that could create a mistrial. And just, you're right. And he goes, we're in recess. And then he ran off the bench. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> That's crazy. I have to say, it's, it's also when you're talking about how, uh, just to go into like a little bit of Hollywood context, the thing you're saying about how all the actors uh, were big, I watched this movie on Amazon video. And one of the, the good things about watching a movie on Amazon video is you can, you know, like you hover over and it shows you the names of people and has little blurbs about them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're right. All of these, there was so many big names. This movie. Sandra Bullock had already done Speed. Matthew McConaughey had already had his... I think he did Dazed uh, and Confused by this point. Yeah, he already had Dazed and Confused. Yeah. Yeah, Donald Sutherland. And this movie was full of stars. You know, Ashley Judd was already like born a Judd. You know, like, this was. And had, and had uh, Kiefer Sutherland from Lost Boys, another Joel Schumacher movie. Yeah. Had he already done uh, A Few Good Men? Yes, he did. A Few a few Good Men was yeah. 1996. He had done A Few Good Men. Well, the time. A star studded cast of people here down sweating in Mississippi. I wonder because this was John Grisham's first book, and it was written in '89, which, and then like Mississippi Burning came out the year po- before. I mean, I know how long it takes to write a book, but those two experiences are being written about almost simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't Mississippi Burning set in the '60s? It was set in the '60s, but it came. The movie came out in 1988. I don't actually remember Mississippi Burning, but I have like a foggy recollection that was based on true events. Is that true? It was. It was. Yes, it was. So, I mean, John Grisham knew the story. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he was inspired by, like, the, uh, the, the factual events in Mississippi Burning. But uh, what else does, there's something else I was going to say about the, uh, the courtroom thing. I don't know if Boston has come to this, but what I've realized is in order to, to enjoy or even tolerate courtroom dramas, I really have to suspend a lot of things. You have to allow for a lot of room, because otherwise it would drive you crazy. And I, and I think about it, like, Everybody who's an expert on any topic, when, in, when you see a dramatized, you really have to just let things go. Like, I'm sure people who are like sound engineers watch a movie about making a record, they're probably pulling their hair out. It's like, he's just moving those sliders around. <laughs> it just makes any sense. Well, what you would know, you say so. is one of the most accurate courtroom dramas you've seen on, well, movies or shows? Oh, that's a good question. What I'm trying to think, what's the movie that I thought was an accurate courtroom drama? Is the wire accurate? I mean, it's not a big courtroom show, but it does have it often in. I in can the, say from it. a criminal defense perspective, even though it's highly dramatized, the best and most accurate courtroom show that I've seen is The Practice, which was a show that was in the late 90s, early I 2000s. Yeah. That's fairly accurate in terms of legal procedure. Gary, the, there's the shows that they obviously used to show us in law school. My Cousin Vinny. Is often shown. I've heard that's actually really accurate. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. And at least in terms of how cross works, how direct works, how like they, it, it actually teaches you how to do it appropriately because there's times when Joe Pesci's character is leading the witness and he doesn't really know he's leading the witness. I'm trying to think like they're usually just so ridiculous that like, you just kind of like, oh, come on now, people. You know, and I think part of that is because if you try to carry out a trial according to the, like the rules and pace of a real trial, it would be super long and like boring. 
Right. Like everything that happens in a trial takes longer than would be reasonable to to dramatize. For example, when the psychiatrist sits down to, to testify, you would probably spend 10 minutes talking about his resume before he even like opined on anything. You would say, oh, doctor, tell us where you went to undergrad. Tell us where you went to medical right. school. Tell us about your residency. When were you first qualified? How many times have you been qualified as an expert in the state of Mississippi and you know, in psychiatry. And you would have to do all that because you literally have to make a record of this before you can ask him to offer an opinion as an expert in the case. And like, there's times where like the, plausibly the other side could say, oh, you know what? We recognize he's an expert, but even if they did, you wouldn't do it because you want the jury to hear the person's CV. And like that kind of stuff doesn't make for a good movie because can you imagine sitting there, like if they would have taken 10 minutes of the runtime of this movie to have the psychiatrist read his resume? Who wants to watch that? In in terms to answer your question about The Wire, I think The Wire is accurate in terms of the pacing, like how slow the wheels of justice and how absurd the wheels of justice could be. I don't know if there was really an out and out trial. I I guess there was. I mean, The Wire. The only one that really comes to mind. The one with when uh when Omar takes a stand. Yeah. Yes. That that was like the one full trial I think we saw. I will say this: I thought that some of the the depiction of how things worked as far as the state's attorney them having to go to her to get the wiretaps and and her like having to go through with her bosses and the writing of it. That part I thought was something you don't see very often because like usually that sort of just gets like sort of shazammed or like in a movie where it's like we need a wire then like they have a wire where it's like all of that stuff is actually very painful and i think it's good to see i think that's where the wire was good the wire was good at showing you and and also like in a bunch of different businesses and ways like none of this stuff goes smoothly like like when if you want a wiretap from the the state you have to lay out all the reasons why you're about to violate these people's rights and the judge, you know, like they, you know, they had to go to the judge. And the judge reads it. And they come back with the corrections and stuff. I thought that was cool. You don't see that, I think, in a lot of movies because I think there's this sort of assumption that like the state just goes to a judge and goes, "Hey, judge, I would like to listen to this person's phone call." And the judge goes, "Is he a criminal?" And you're like, "Yeah." And it goes, "Go at it." You know, and that's not the way it's supposed to work. Although right. apparently that Breonna Taylor thing in Kentucky, that was kind of how it worked. But the judge was like, "Go for it. Knock off a door. Do what you do." I'm remembering that show. You know, I think it was just a miniseries on HBO called The Night Of, which was a one of the writers of The Wire actually did it. But it really showed you how grueling the process is of of being sentenced. Mm-hmm. It just like walked you through that entire path. I forget if you actually see a trial at this point now that I'm thinking about it, but just how long waiting takes uh, when one is sentenced and goes through all of that. And all of this stuff really is also so location dependent. Like, for example, right. I thought that the Chauvin trial happened really fast. Like I was like, wow, they got that whole thing in, in a year. Mm. Like, you know, I'm sure Boston will tell you how many, like a year from arrest to actual trial is very fast in my experience. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. And in the place that we practiced New York city, you're talking about three years for something like that. At least easily. I mean, at least a year and a half or two, like a year and a half would have been fast. But the fact that like, they're like, you know, picking a jury in under a year. I was like, wow, that was wild. I, especially like the motions practice on the witnesses alone. Like I remember cases where I was defending clients. The rules in Minnesota might be different. Like cases where I had to go meet with a DNA expert 
essentially do my own pre-voir which is ask her questions, right? Dr. Tobin was a pulmonologist in the Chauvin trial who gave the, the devastating testimony about how his breathing stopped and exactly when he died. The defense attorney would have had all the access to Dr. Tobin that the prosecutors would essentially have had, right? So that alone would have been, I don't know, I get, the, you, you, Gary, you're right. The fact that they were able to do that in a year is pretty incredible, especially considering the number of witnesses and issues that were at hand. Well, I imagine the, well, a couple of things. I mean, the video, but more specifically in terms of like expediency would be maybe the pandemic. I would think that would make it even slower. Well, it would, but except wouldn't there also be less things just not happening? So the one obvious thing who's everyone's eyes on, maybe it's just the pressure, the the, the pressure of the protests. I think that's what it was. It, it does go to show you that the, the government can move very fast when it wants to. Yeah. Which, you know, and because that's what that had to be. That had to be the pressure. I mean, maybe they do things faster in Minnesota in general. But the reason I even brought it up is that was one of the things about the trial schedule in this movie in A Time to Kill, completely unrealistic. I would be more willing to believe that a judge would let you yell at witnesses and do all the ridiculous stuff that they did than, the, than that they would have a one-month like schedule for trial. That's the craziest part of the whole thing. Like, you get six weeks to write motions. Like, right. So the idea that the judge is basically like, so the bodies hit the floor like sometime like say June. I don't see any reason why we can't kick this trial off July twenty second. I mean that part to me was the craziest <laughs> part of the movie. I would imagine if he didn't waive speedy trial, you have a right to a speedy trial, but generally defendants waive it so they have more time to prepare for trial. Now, if you didn't waive speedy trial, you said I want a speedy trial. There's probably nothing else on the docket in Mississippi besides like DUIs and domestic violence charges, right? Wouldn't you say it's bordering on malpractice for you to be ready for a capital murder where they're literally like, we're going to kill this man if he loses? <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> well, you're like I'm ready next month. Sure, let's do this. Yeah. You know, and, and like, one thing I didn't buy in this movie was based on the type of person that would defend Carl in that climate, I would assume would be against the death penalty. That like that whole conversation with him and Sandra Bullock, I'm for it. I'm all about it. I'm like, this doesn't feel really congruent with your character, Matthew. I don't have a problem with that because I you know what? there are defense attorneys who are like staunch conservatives who will defend you with everything they have. There, especially in the, the criminal defense bar, there is a strong streak of people who say, I am here to defend this person against the weight of the state to make sure that the power of the government is not put upon you without full legal process and right. full test of their evidence. So yeah, there's people, I absolutely believe a guy who'd be like, oh, fry them all, stack them on the thing two by two, would defend you with everything he's got just because you're accused. Even if he thought that you deserved to, to die. Like I've seen a case where there's a defense attorney who defended a guy who every time the guy left the room because he was in custody would say, I cannot stand this man. I hate him. <laughs> you know, but, but when the jury was in the room and it, the lights were on, he gave this man a thorough defense and actually got the guy acquitted. We couldn't stand him. He thought the guy was a terrible criminal and was super guilty. I mean, which he was, but his lawyer defended him with every bit of charm and, and ability he had, even though he thinks he's a despicable person who should have been in prison. And that, I think that's more the norm than anything else. 
Wouldn't you agree with that, uh, Boston? Yeah, and and there's another thing going on. And of the three, I'm the only one that has a daughter. So if somebody had raped and urinated on my daughter, like, I don't know what I would do. Like, I feel like Carly Haley didn't even have a choice. I thought that he killed him further into the process. Carly Haley didn't waste time. He no. didn't even wait for a, for a bail hearing. <laughs> Yeah, I thought like, it was like, like the trial wasn't looking good. He decided he'd have to take things into his own hands. No, he killed him like right off the bat almost. The sheriff got the confession. I don't know if Carly Haley was aware of the confession, but look, Carly was like, man, like, yo, somebody tried to hang her and threw her off in a ravine and raped and urinated on her. There's not an attorney who has children at least, and maybe who could just empathize who wouldn't have said, regardless of your feelings about the death penalty, that those two boys deserve to die? Well, if anything, I would argue that the way it happened makes more sense than the death penalty in a weird way. Like, if you're going to go feign this conceived process of justice we have now to murder this person, that to me is more disturbing than the very emotional understanding response that, you know, Samuel L. Jackson's character did. Absolutely. Yeah. To Gary, to your point, what's the famous saying by Herm Edwards? You play to win the game. That's true. That's it. Bar none. I want to win. And I think it's actually easier as a defense attorney to defend a guilty person because it's all house money. Because you go, look, if I win, that's because <laughs> I did an excellent job. If I lose, exactly. I mean, hell, he was super guilty. What do you want from me? Yeah. And I don't know if that would have been the case for Carly. I think that if he had lost that case, that would have probably shook him to his core. Like, I know if I had the Carly case and I lost it, even though he was guilty of sin, that would have shook me to the court. And this is a, this is a tricky thing. And this is the, the job of a, a good criminal defense attorney. Maybe your client did something, but maybe they don't deserve the punishment that the state is offering. Do you know what I mean? Like, and there's that. Which is why I think it was crazy that they were going for the, that the guy announced he was going for the death penalty ahead of time. Because it's like, why are you making it harder for yourself, Mr. DA? You should just say, <laughs> hey, that's not up to me. That's for the judge and the jury to decide. I'm just here to try and get justice. This man's out on the courtroom steps talking about, yeah, I'm going for the death penalty. It's like, what? Don't, don't, don't tell on yourself. I don't know. You weren't practicing lawyers at this time, but has like the nation's perception on a death penalty changed dramatically since uh, this time? I think so. I mean, I would say personally mine has, you know, though I was actually pro-death penalty until later in life. And what changed my mind about the death penalty isn't that I've like suddenly become like a way more liberal person. It's that it just doesn't work right. You know, it's mechanically bad because if you mess, if you convict someone incorrectly, there is no fixing it. Well, I mean, isn't it true? I remember doing research on this. It's more expensive to put someone going through the death penalty than it is putting them in prison for life it yeah, is but that's like that's an implementation problem that doesn't come back to is it the right thing to do i mean that's, that'd be like because no, that's it, true it is an interesting reality that most people well, that most people who haven't already like gone through the process of thinking about this type of thing realize well you know because like killing the perpetrator doesn't bring anyone back my position is it's more of a bloodlust thing than anything else and if putting them in prison for life because they're uh, a harm to society and they're failing every act of any potential rehabilitation. I mean, and that's cheaper that way. Well, fine. <laughs> like let them, let them read books. Putting someone in, in prison for life. That's not, uh, 
that's not fixing anything either. It is and it isn't. Like I think that in terms of if you if you think about prisons in general, like outside of the major issue now where they're run like businesses for profit, I see the main purpose of prison in our society as primarily for safety more than anything else. I think it's no, it's primarily for punishment because most of the people in prison aren't dangerous. Like statistically speaking, I mean, like there's a lot of people in prison for violent crimes, yes, but most of those people, they're not in prison for for protecting us from them. They're in prison to punish them. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm arguing the foundation in which I make my argument for. To me, that is the primary merit of prison is safety. Like someone like Charles Manson really deserved prison for life. He would have started a cult quicker than like Scientology. And it would have been more radical and crazy and harmful and racist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that man, I mean, he, he I, there's like a, there was a, before he died, he died recently, right? Like not too long no, ago. I think Charles Manson's still alive, right? He's dead. Before he died though, like there was a website where you could track Manson's uh, prison movements. That man earned solitary so many goddamn times. He would just like end up running like, the whole drug trafficking in the prison where every, where any, every like given access to establish that he deserves to be in prison for life. He is a danger to society. I would argue if there's any candidate for no rehabilitation will help this man. He's a good candidate. Like we need prisons. Mm -hmm. I think though the yeah, primary but, reason we need the, him is because of safety. Yeah, but the truth of the matter is like how many people are irredeemable Murdering sociopaths. I'm assuming not very many. Thank no, Lord. I think it's less than five percent. If I had to guess, think about it. Let's say Bernie Madoff, right? Bernie Madoff ripped off a bunch of people, but he wasn't like a danger to the community. It's not like you were walking down the street and he was going to hit you with a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> punishment does need to be a component. I'm not saying we should rid the theory of punishment out of the prison system, but I just don't think it should be the focus. That's all. It's it just gets weird because like we want retribution and we want like the government to seek retribution, but like it's we don't really like to talk about it. It's a weird situation because you know what? Like part of the reason why we have a court system, right, is to prevent people feeling the need to take just go do a Carl Lee Haley. Carl Lee Haley right. did it because he said, but they're not gonna punish these guys sufficiently. If Carl Lee Haley was confident that those guys were gonna get convicted and get at best, life in prison, he probably would have sat there through the trial, but he thought they'd get off. So that, that's where it's interesting, right? Because you go, yeah. if we didn't put people in for punishment, so let's go with the Madoff example, right? Or even a smaller level. If you say your Ponzi guy gets you for, you know, he makes a few million bucks, breaks a few people's life savings. If he doesn't go to prison, because we go, well, there's no point in putting this man in prison. And maybe someone says, well, I got to go find him. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think it just should be oriented toward rehabilitation and, and listen punishment's necessary as well i just think it's too much the focal point well it's not even necessarily the i think profit's the focal point now and the whole thing's fucking muddy but well most prisons are not private though most prisons are run by the state i mean the profit is in that like prison guards make a good living and stuff and then there's like but like that's an that's an implementation problem. Like we don't have to charge people to make phone calls. We don't have to charge people to buy books. Like it doesn't have to be that way. And similar to like public schools, prisons are often infiltrated by private entities. Like I know uh like uh you know Christy Whitman I think owns like one of the main food purveyors for like uh, New Jersey's prison systems. Like there's a lot of privatized infiltration. Like who is that rapper Drakeo who put out that album entirely uh, 
wrapped on the GTL phone system, global telling. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like, there's what you find out is there's a lot of unnecessary predatory stuff. Like the, they're like charging people to make a phone call or like, I think the worst one I saw recently is there's some state, I can't remember which one it is, but like, they charge like a dollar a page to print out emails for people. So like you can send a prisoner an email, but it has to be printed out at like some ridiculous fee. You're right. So there's a fish called the Remora fish, right? And it attaches itself to a shark and it yeah. like feeds off the bacteria of the shark. And that is like the prison system, right? You have these Remora fish who are surrounding this system and making their weight or making their money off this terrible institution that probably should be downsized. Look, Bernie Madoff, the question going into prison, and maybe I think, what's the, the restorative justice, I think is the, the term that everybody's yeah. trying to use now. What could possibly happen that would teach Bernie Madoff while figuring out a way to make his victims whole. That should be the question, not just putting Bernie Madoff in prison for the rest of his life, because that doesn't fix anything. It's, right. There's a way that you could do that that would probably, like high-level contract negotiation is, is what I do now for work, right? The first question that I always ask a person that I'm trying to negotiate with is, this is what I want. I want you to tell me how I get there. Like... I want you to talk to me about what scenario in your mind makes sense for my pricing. And I think that's what the question that they need to ask in prison when they are getting ready to send as a defendant. How does he learn his lesson or she learn his lesson? And how do these victims, if there is a victim, how are they made whole? If you're a shoplifter, what would it take for you to feel comfortable with the notion of whatever it is that was taken from you being replaced? You know, what would that mean for you? And that's a longer, more in-depth conversation than is generally happening before a sentencing. We have to have a paradigm shift too, because we what we have to do is right now, and the, the Chauvin trial is actually a good example, is it has become so deeply seated in the American mindset that like years are how you show, like it's like years are how the government shows love for the victim, you know, or like people are saying, Oh, they would be so terribly offended if Chauvin only got 15 years in prison. You go, that's a long time. You know, that's <laughs> it's a long like, time. You know, but they and I see people saying that people who are generally like very liberal and progressive in almost everything they say and everything they message. I've seen these same people saying, "Well, if they only give them 15 years, that's a slap on the wrist." You go, "Slap on the wrist." Well, what would you charge me if I said I need you to go to prison for 15 years, and also I need to be able to tell everybody that you committed a murder? and put that on your record. Like you probably couldn't come up with a reasonable number for that. Like if I said for you to swap places with Chauvin right now where no one knows the difference between you and Chauvin and I give you the 15, how much would you charge me? You would you probably wouldn't be able to put a number on that, could you? No. No, it's really hard. People don't want to be put in that position. But but at the same token, those same people will tell you it's a slap on the wrist. But if it's a slap on the wrist, how come you can't name it? Like, you know, because like a slap on the wrist to me sounds like something that I could actually come up with a number for. Like there's like a scenario where I could bring I could lower the stakes enough where you would say, Oh, well, I do that. Like if I said to you, you know what, I'll give you hundred grand if you do a month on Rikers. You think about it. You might even check yourself in for a hundred grand, right? But hundred grand <laughs> 60 days you take in, Chauvin's spot. Sure. Going back more to the death penalty. And another argument I think against it is that I don't really think it does much to deter murder. Like people who murder aren't thinking before, you know, I better not do this. I could get the death penalty. 
I, I really don't. I think like people who murder like are going to murder anyways. Yeah. yeah. I think the only thing the death penalty does is like, I think the death penalty gets people to plead a life in prison. I think that's what it does. Cause it's like, Hey, that's, that's better than death. And the secondary <laughs> thing is like, I think no punishment deters people who are like, who just are not deterrable. I think punishment deters those of us who are like deterrable, but also I think the studies of, come to the same thing which is it's really sureness to punishment more than severity of punishment that actually works as a deterrent like if you really think you're going to get caught you're less likely to do it even if you're not as worried about what you'll get like people don't want to be caught right huh so yeah and, and there's that saying locks only keep honest people out you know like yeah. you're right yeah. if people think that they're going to get away with it and it's easy to do they're going to commit the crime yeah. Which is why people run red lights or speed. Yeah. If you are a thousand percent sure that you were going to get caught speeding, nobody would speed. I bet you speeding would drop to almost nothing. If let's say it got to like 60% of people who drove 10 miles an hour, got a ticket. Like if it was like, if you knew that if you did 65 and a 55, there was a 60% chance you'd get a ticket. Yeah, a lot of people just go, I'm just not going to do it. It's not worth it. Well, because everybody knows speed limit really just means speed suggestion. (laughs) Yeah, and you also know that there's a very low chance of like getting caught. But by the same token, and this is actually, this is a little bit of an aside if if you'll give me a second. I'm the kind of person that I like accuracy in words. And so that probably makes me annoying sometimes. But I saw this guy saying, well, you know, police don't prevent crime, which here's the thing. He was almost right. If he would have said police's job is not to primarily prevent crime and they don't prevent anywhere near as much crime as they like to take credit for, I would have agreed 100%. But the fact of the matter is police do prevent some crime. Because then think about it, when's the last time you saw somebody commit a gunpoint robbery in front of a police car? You know, so like clearly some crime has been prevented. You know, it's by the same token as like if you're on the highway and you pass like five state troopers, you probably you slow, slow down, down, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so yep. I mean, it's a it's a ridiculous idea to say that like police don't prevent any crime. No, police don't prevent all the crime. They don't even prevent maybe much of the crime. But yeah, some crime doesn't get committed because people don't want to be caught. And that's where the thing is like I think the punishment itself, like the severity, isn't as important. But it's the like the realistic fear of you getting caught. Like if you, it's like you know you go out on Memorial Day and there's a cop on like around every patch. It feels like when you're on the highway Memorial Day. You ever right. you guys ever like drive on a holiday weekend? You're like good yep. god, like there's like. I feel like every state trooper in two states is just like out parked on the side of the road. Yeah, looking for drunk drivers. It's the principle that Gary, our law professor, called the punishment lottery. Now, if you get caught for a crime, you feel like it was your unlucky day. I lost the, yeah, I won the punishment lottery today. I got caught speeding. I think in some places, like I think the murder clearance rate is pretty high in New York, meaning that the number of solved murders, and I think is, what is it, about 60% New York, 70%? I'd have to look it up, but it is, it's, it's not like in the places where it's really bad. Like, like I think Baltimore is one of the ones where like, they just don't solve murders. Yeah. Like, like Baltimore, yeah, you could kill somebody. Here. There's only a 30% chance you're going to go to jail for it. What's Chicago? Chicago's really low too. That's why there's so much murder in Chicago because chances are you're going to get away with it. Yeah. You know, like a place like New York, Manhattan in particular, chances of you getting away with a murder are very slim provided you're in a certain neighborhood or, and, you know, you're not of a certain race, but the chances are you're probably not getting away with a murder in New York City. Here's an interesting stat on Chicago specifically. From January 2018 to July 2019, 
So like Asians, 75% of the murders were solved, which is three out of four. 47% of white victims were solved, which was 21 out of 45. 33% of Hispanic, which is 37 out of 113. And all those numbers, like, I don't know, feel relatively low when you hear about Chicago until you get to the black section, which is 22% of them, which is 148 out of 687. Which goes back to what Boston said. I mean, like, that that sort of lowers your risk on a murder. If you know, because what this means is if, if you're in the streets and you deal with other people and they talk about it, you know who has killed someone and gotten away with it. And yes. you know, you got a decent odd. So if you are angry enough and you feel justified enough to commit this crime, you know, there's a pretty decent chance I'll get away with it. It also makes sense that if you killed somebody in a surrounding town, you just go dump the body in Chicago. You probably also very well know that too. You know, yeah. especially if the guy's from out of town, he doesn't have a lot of connections, the body's found, nobody's going to do anything about it. Yeah. That, that's actually something that has happened a lot in my hometown. You know, as I said, I'm from Gary, Indiana. And over the years, lots of bodies have been dumped in Gary, Indiana from people from other towns. Some of them get, you know, actually came up dead in Gary, but other people, it became like almost a thing, especially back in like the 90s when the murder rates were higher. Was Gary, Indiana as bad? Like, what's the makeup of it when you grew up there? Uh, it was 86% black when I grew up. It was the blackest major city in America. Okay. It's interesting, like, like some of the things that happen is like people from the surrounding communities would use Gary as like a dumping ground for their, their crimes. So like they would drop, they would burn up their car for insurance purposes and drop it in Gary, you know, like, and they got caught a lot of times, you know, like it's like every idiot around there thought that like, they're like, my genius criminal plan is I will take the car that I don't want to pay for. I will set it on fire in Gary and pretend that the Negroes stole it. And they kept getting caught doing it, but like, but I'm sure it works some of the time. And then, like, you know, they would dump bodies and stuff. And it's like, I don't know if some of that's just the function of it being the biggest city around or if they were like, I'm going to take it to where all the black people live. <laughs> I'll just assume that they did it. Right. It's a product of opportunism, at least to, to some degree. It's a, it's a weird thing because, like, I, part of being a kid is, like, sometimes, like, I would just look up and there'd be, like, a car on fire down the alley. <laughs> like, wow, there's just a car just on fire. There's the famous Charles Stewart case in Boston, Massachusetts, where the guy kills his pregnant wife and claims he was carjacked in a black neighborhood in Boston. And the reason that he did that is because he thought it would be believable that something like that would happen to him in inner city Boston, which is primarily black. As a result, the police ended up knocking a lot of heads around in the neighborhood. They kicked in a lot of doors, you know, essentially racially profiling all the black guys and bringing them in for questioning. Um, it didn't go as far as the Central Park Five because Charles Stewart's brother told on him. He said, no, my brother had called me and essentially told me the whole plan. And before they were able to arrest him, he jumped off a bridge and killed himself. But ironically, because of that case, they opened up a lot of Catholic schools in the city and funded, funded them through money that the city kind of had to pay for the mistreatment of black people. And that's how I ended up going to Catholic school at a very low cost. Huh. Wow, look at that. Unintended consequences. <laughs> Unintended consequences but, yeah, of it's, racism. It's interesting that people keep trying to bring out the old, like the black guy did it stories, you know, like it gets to the point where it became like a comedy trope in the nineties. You know, <laughs> if you remember, like it's crazy how they keep trying to pull that same trick. Talking about all these like interesting factoids, like I started thinking about how institutionalized racism manifests and creates these weird realities in which we're speaking to. 
you know, the, the racist operations at this point are more akin to a wound left untreated and ignored versus a person creating the wound itself. At this point, obviously, it started with a wound being made, right? But I wonder if it's that apathy and kind of these dark opportunities that are created amongst this misery that, like, looking at unsolved black murder rates in Chicago, for an example, it's not paying attention or deliberately ignoring a really difficult problem. It's a, it's worse than that because it's a, like it's like being a student loan debt with compounding interest because it just keeps getting worse and worse over time in a lot of ways. You know, because... If you think about it, all these things connect to each other. You know, why do they not solve the crimes? Is it because they don't care? Partly it's that they don't care, but partly it's because they spent years forming a really terrible relationship with communities so that no one will help them solve the crimes. You know, it's like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's all it all goes together. Like if the police hadn't spent so long being miserable and abusing people for no reason. Then when the police come around and say, hey, did you see what happened? They'd be more likely to get cooperation. And then also it loops back into the other part of it is the police would be more likely to get cooperation if they actually solved the crimes. Because like, think about your incentive to be a witness to a crime and to cooperate with the police if they're not going to catch the person and convict them anyway. So now I put myself at risk that people know I'm snitching and nothing's going to happen anyway. So I mean, it's like, it all sort of plows back into each other. Being bad at being a cop makes people less likely to want to help you be a cop, which makes you worse at being a cop. Yeah. hundred percent. Which is crazy, right? Because it's like, how do you dig out of a hole that deep? That's why I say it's like, it's like student loan interest where you're not making your payments. Where it's like, like the bad policing in Chicago that's been going on for generations has got them to this point now where they can't solve a freaking murder because it's like, who's going to call and tell them? So I bet you the majority of the murders that they actually solve are probably pre-solved, where it's like the person did it on, on camera. Yeah, the person did it in a convenience store and they got him on camera. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's actually take a second to go take it back to the movie. What did you guys think of the sheriff character? I found the Billy Joe, like the rapist, the way they interacted with the sheriff was like was really interesting. So it was like you just said you recognized this man was in the NFL, right? And then you tried to pick a fight with him. That seems unwise. <laughs> When I was watching that scene, I was just kept on thinking about how that actor just loves to play a piece of shit. He was like the person you were supposed to hate in a Green Mile, um, Percy he played. Yeah, he did play Percy in Green Mile. I think that like, if you firmly believe that you're untouchable, which these guys thought, yeah, then screw the sheriff. I'm going to spend a few nights in prison. We're going to go to trial in 10 days, according to their trial calendar. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get this thing knocked out. Before we'll get the this thing knocked out. out. Now go back to raping little girls. Because this is the thing. This wasn't necessarily, and this is what I know being a, a former criminal defense attorney, right? There's a difference between rape and pedophilia. These guys were attracted to little kids. I forgot that she was so young. That's the thing when I say, like, I forgot some of, like, the blow-by-blow of the movie. Like, I had in my mind before I started watching it again, I was like, oh, it must have been, like, a teenager or something. When we talk about the cartoonizing of the movie, they made sure that they made these guys the most unredeemably evil bad guys they could have possibly been. Like, if there's ever a way to get a jury notification that's, like, a 10-year-old, like, just just no mercy. Like, they they basically made it where everybody in the courtroom was saying, well, you know what? Could have been me. I probably would have done it too. Yeah, <laughs> and they left the sh- the bloody shoe 
in the back of the pickup truck. Well, I mean, these people. I are can believe that though, stupid motherfucker. The characters were coming off as very drunk, but not just that. But like these guys were were not trying to get away with this. That's true. Yeah, they were proud about it. They were flexing. They were about fifty years too late in time for this. Like in 1946, maybe you could pull this off. 1996, they waited too long. Their granddaddy might have been able to get away with one of these. Their great granddaddy definitely could have got away with it. But are you so sure that they wouldn't have gotten the acquittal? No, they, these guys are getting convicted. Now, the question is, what do they get as a sentence? No, they're getting convicted because, like, think about it. If you start lining up this case, right? These idiots were driving a yellow pickup truck, had the shoe in the in the bed of it. And it'd been like riding around harassing black people earlier in that day. Like these fellows were getting convicted. I forget when it was brought up, but it was earlier in the film. Was that trial that was referenced where the people got off scot-free? Was that a historic trial that they brought up? I don't think so. My opening statement might be something like, yes, sound like the boondocks are Kelly. There's a mountain of evidence. <laughs> However, <laughs> I call this racism. I like, are you really going to send these boys for this? These are some good boys. That's when you, you know what? That's when you're starting to fight for mitigation. You're like, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them on something that doesn't have a life at the end of it. Like a defense attorney <laughs> with that case is like, look, man, I'm just trying to keep you from getting life, boys. Like, like you go into prison. We're just trying to get, get you home to see your mother before she dies. Yeah. What they were trying to insinuate is you put 12 white guys or 12 white women in a box. If you're the defense attorney, you're crafting your defense to make them choose in 1996 Mississippi over sending some white boys away for something that they did to a black person. And I think you can get the acquittal. We've seen cops, at least, and George Zimmerman get away with things that seem reprehensible. But if you put 12 white people in a jury box and you make this stand, like his life is more valuable than the life that he took. So let's not ruin this man's existence. And if you watch the Chauvin trial, that's the undertones of the defense. The defense on the Chauvin trial is ridiculous. That at the moment that he had his knee on the neck of Chauvin, he died simultaneously of natural cause. Like to the defense of the defense, I'll just I'll, as the white guy, I'll take the bre breach of this. But uh, <laughs> what else could he have said? But there was another defense, I think. Well, 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 I'm well curious. what do you think the other defense is? Because that, well, here's the thing. Like, this what, is also what, what else I, could I he like point say? Out, like, this is what defense attorneying looks like. When you're left with bad facts, you end up having to make bad arguments, right? Right. So this is what it looks like all across the nation all the time. You know, if someone mugs your grandma at gunpoint, she points him out. They got to say your grandma didn't have a good good look at him. And her, like, and her glasses were foggy and maybe she's racist. Like, because like, what else are you going to do? Like, like if when you're stuck, you're stuck. You know, but I, you know, I didn't watch this carefully in Boston, so I, I will defer to him. So what do you think the better defense would have been, or at least an alternative defense would have an been? An alternative defense would have been, yes, he had his knee on his neck. This is all in the heat of the moment. My client is a decorated police officer, did not understand the full ramifications and was acting in the line of duty that he thought was correct. And yes, they're going to say that... Oh, they're going to now, in retrospect, get a bunch of police officers to say that my client did something wrong. However, I would have had every police report where there was ever police misconduct and it wasn't corrected. When they called the chief of police up, 
I would have had a thousand complaints where people were doing things and the police were sweeping it under the rug saying that these people are just doing their jobs. I think that would have been the more appropriate defense. I would have made it seem like this is par for the course, my client's doing his job, and then the moment that they see something that gets hypermedia attention, they want to hang him out to dry. Well, you may have hung yourself up by saying this is par for the course. But, but the, the, the fact of the matter I get is— what I get what you're saying, though. The fact of the matter is Chauvin had subsequent federal indictments, right? Apparently it was par for the course. Like, this is just happening on a regular basis. Well, right. No, I mean, and, that's the—right. And, and right. now— Rather than change department policy, because you have explicit policy, but then you also have implicit policy, which is do what you need to do. And we wink and nod at that. It was the code red defense in A Few Good Men is probably what I would have done. Hmm. See, the issue that Chauvin had, though, is that he just overdid it. Like if George Floyd would have died, I would say three, four (laughs) minutes of knee pressure. I think he's a free man. But the fact that he ran it up to nine minutes, you got firefighters and stuff saying, hey, man, you should probably stop. You're sitting there with your hands in your pockets. That's what he did. It. Like, he just, he overdid it. And people get mad about it. And they say, oh, you know, they murdered, uh, what's it, Eric Garner, right? But if you look at it, nobody held Eric Garner by the neck for nine minutes. Like, the pressure was sort of transitory, like it was quick, guys hanging off his neck. So you could at least make the argument, like, I wasn't trying to snuff the man out. You know, like, things went wrong. The guy weighed 400 pounds. You can make excuses, right? None of that's available to Chauvin because he's sitting there as calm as you please with his knee on the man's back for, like, as the clock ticks away. Yeah. And, like, the very, like, the evidence was just so bad. In the end, like, you know, as even as people were saying, oh, you know, Kind of like with the time to kill situation, people saying, oh, I've seen white people get off for other stuff, but it's the, the, the quality of the evidence, right? The victim in this case is not like a child, but if it had been a child, obviously that makes it easier. But the fact that the victim was clearly helpless and no threat at the time it happened, and it's all on video, that's what did it. Yeah. You know, it, didn't take, it didn't take a genius legal presentation to just say, you see this man killing him on video, right? Yet the other major problem with any defense by Chauvin is when Chauvin has his hands in his pocket and he has his knee on this man's neck, he's looking at a child. A child is recording that and he knows it. And that's what makes the whole thing really sick. But besides the fact that the man died, he was trying to prove his toughness to a 14-year-old girl recording this, which is why I think, according to the sentencing guidelines, he should be looking at a max of 12 years in prison. Hate it or love it. And Gary, you just spoke about this. 12 years in prison is a long time, regardless. However, a lot of people might say he should be looking at more time. He murdered a person, but they didn't charge him with first degree murder. And it's his first time down. It's going to be his first time in prison, no prior convictions. But I think the fact that he did this in front of children and in front of an audience I think the judge might go above the guidelines and and give him a lot of years. With the scrutiny, you're probably right. Because if you're the judge and everybody's watching, you don't want to be the judge that gets famous for going soft on the TV murderer, man. (laughs) Yeah. One way to look at it is that he created more trauma for a lot of people. But as I said that, then I started to correct myself in my head by saying he exposed a trauma that everyone was already feeling. But uh, the majority of people here, I think... Uh, are not going to be mad at him getting a little more time. No. Like, so Americans are generally, as we were discussing earlier, they're pretty bloodthirsty when it comes to punishment. Yes. Like in America, America's probably the only country on earth 
where if you say 12 years, people go, what, 12 years? That's an insult. Yeah, we're also, you know, the country of consecutive life sentences. You're like, what? Really? <laughs> like, yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> this is the only country that will give you a life sentence and 100 afterwards. <laughs> we give you life yeah, just in case. Just in case, like, there's a zombie uprise. Your zombie's going to prison. Yeah, look. In case they cure death, you gotta you owe us another hundred, just in case. You have the two federal indictments that Chavin's facing, right? And my best guesstimation is he probably gets about 15 years from the judge. And I think he's gonna go above the guidelines. He's probably not gonna go crazy because he doesn't want anything to come back on appeal. Right. The appellate courts are hidden. So they issue a decision and it just doesn't cause as much fury as a guy on camera. So He's not going to want to come back on appeal. I imagine the federal courts give him 25 years for the first indictment. I think that's in line with what the cop who shot Walter Scott, the guy in South Carolina who got shot in the back and the cop didn't know. He got 25 years from the feds. And I think they're going to run that 15 concurrent with the 25. But I think that the, the second indictment they're going to give him some time on that and they'll run it consecutively. So I mean, he, 25 probably is fair. Cause I mean, that's what you get for like, if that's what they murder. gave the Walter Scott guy, cause just to, to add to what you said, the Walter Scott thing, that is a guy who was running from a traffic stop where the cops shot him in the back for no reason as he was running away and then tried to uh, say he had a, a weapon. I think he tried to say he'd seen a knife or something ridiculous. Right. So he basically, he murdered the guy and then lied about it. And he got 25 for what you would have to say, the cold-blooded murder. But generally, if you go commit a cold-blooded murder, that's about what you'll get. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's, to me, that sounds about right, because part of the plan, the whole punishment, like, you know, matrix thing is you do try and have some sort of consistency. I mean, this is a cold-blooded murder. I don't yeah. see why you have to give him more than you give the other cold-blooded murder. I mean, like, you know, so is this worse than that? No, only and, in that he's a, a public servant, but the actual yeah, that way it makes it worse. worse. That makes it worse, I think. And there's a difference, right? So if I go and I hold up Seven Eleven and I shoot the clerk, that's a first degree murder. Now Chavin got second degree murder, which is a lesser offense. It, it means that there wasn't a plan involved. Am I right? Well, to to be exactly accurate, yeah. In Minnesota, the subset of the second degree murder is what we would call felony murder. So it's a murder that occurs in the commission of a felony, right? So regardless of your intent, you were committing a felony and somebody died. In most states, first-degree murder is like, the way I describe it is like murder with hot sauce on it. It's like a murder plus. (laughs) Like, you know, like you murdered a cop on duty or you like get paid to do the murder. Like, it's like... You really thought the murder out. Right, right. Basically, you're run-of-the-mill... I'm mad at my wife. I threw her off. Like, I shot her. That's a murder, too, in most places. Like Right. And is mur- murder three is manslaughter? I don't think there is murder three in most places. I think it's like a ghost but, of manslaughter. But in, in, Minnesota, okay. in Minnesota, I think there was a third-degree murder charge. or, But I think that in most cases that they treat that as manslaughter. Right. I was all well and good on Chauvin in second-degree murder. Like, I thought that was pretty much – until I heard an analysis by um, a psychologist who said – what if Chavin had not had his knee on his neck, but had his hand on his neck and was choking him out? How would mm. that change the facts? And he was like, there is no ascertainable difference between have him having his hand on his neck and his knee on his neck. No, there's not. Well, there is, though, because all of this stuff comes down to how we feel about it. Like, that's the that's thing that, like, we don't talk about a lot, but our laws have a lot of feeling in them because 
you know, to take it back to the punishment lottery idea, right? Is a person drives home drunk, right? You drive home drunk, you pull into your driveway, no one's hurt. You've committed the crime, right? You drove drunk. Now you drive home drunk and someone jaywalks, runs across the road in front of you and you hit them through no fault of your own, but you're drunk. You're going to get convicted of a crime. Yep. And the, what's the difference in the behavior? None. And now rationally, you would go, well, all this is is just drunk driving. I mean, you didn't do anything wrong, but that's not, but no one believes you'll get the same punishment as just a person who got pulled over at a checkpoint, even though you've committed the exact same crime, because that's the way we, like, we do things. Like, you know, there is like, as you said earlier, there's that punishment lottery. So the fact that he you didn't use his hands gets you a different, into a different thing. If he'd have put his hands around him and choked him out, he, put, he would definitely have been treated differently. But what's crazy is if he would have put his hands around his neck, one of those other cops probably would have stopped him mm. just because of the look of it. Chauvin probably would get less punishment because George Floyd would be alive if he just would have started strangling him with his hands because they would have said, oh, <laughs> no, this crazy. is too like much. A, well, a large portion of the way we operate is optics, so it makes sense. But the knee is okay, you know? The, the knee yeah, would just... Cause, yeah, because the knee doesn't look so bad. You're like, <laughs> there's legitimate reasons why you might have a knee on a man's back. you got to get him handcuffed. But you can't come up with a legitimate reason why you're strangling this man with your hands, like Homer Simpson. Like, there's no legitimate reason for that. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, that's when I kind of changed my mind. And I was like, well, maybe a first degree murderer. And not only that, but he kind of puts his hand in his pocket and he's kind of showing off. I don't know. Regardless. You know what? You never want to overcharge that for like, because if a second degree murder encompasses intentional homicides, that's what this was. I can't complain about it. And I'm of the belief that the best way to get the most societal value out of this stuff is to get the conviction with the punishment. Because if there's any police officer who will change his behavior because of this, it's not going to be because of the difference between 12 years and 15 years or 12 years and 25 years. It's going to be the fact that this guy got convicted and sent to prison. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you're the kind of person who's susceptible, I feel like to modifying your behavior because of the risk, once you get into prison, and like a long prison term, you've probably already done that part. You know what I mean? Like, is there anybody yeah. who's like, well, I'd run and I'll, I'll give it a chance for five, but like but if it goes <laughs> to seven, that's when I stop straight. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just to paint a picture of what Chauvin's day to day is going to be like, and in, in, he's in what we call administrative segregation in prison right now. And what that means is he's 22 and two. So 22 hours in his cell, two hours outside of his cell, and that's if the guards choose to allow him to operate. He may be in in his cell for three or four days without coming out and without taking a shower. At some point, after he's sentenced and he becomes official, quote-unquote, state property, right, he gets upstate, because right now he's in the county system. After he's sentenced, he's going to go, he's going to be sent upstate okay. to prison. After that, he's going to remain in administrative segregation and with this short ad seg, then he's going to have to make a decision. He's going to have to say either I'm going to spend the next 10 to 15 years in solitary confinement or I'm going to sign a waiver allowing me to go to general population. And wear a lot of telephone books around your waist. Exactly. (laughs) If he signs a waiver saying that he's going to general population, somebody is going to kill him. And he probably knows that. He definitely knows that. If, let's say he's in federal prison, which is where he's going to be, right? They can't send him to a low-security federal prison because he's being convicted of like a, of a violent crime. So like when they, they, they do their calculations, there's no way you can get him into like the, the bad tax lawyer prison. 
No, he's going to go to places where people have life sentences. And he's all like being a cop's already damning enough. He's like, man, there's some guy who's going to be sitting in a federal prison who's already has three or four consecutive life sentences who gets his name in the newspaper for killing Derek Chauvin. And it's the crazy thing. They wouldn't even bring that guy to trial because what's the point? He already has three or four life sentences and it just doesn't matter to him. Which is also a reason why you don't want to give people, you don't want to put people in with no hope because like, how do you yeah. control someone's behavior who like can't gain anything? Yeah. You know, like it's like, I get the question then becomes how much is he like listening to the radio right now? You're getting down into like privileges. It's like, do you prefer to be able to like get your hour of exercise? You know, like I, like, <laughs> yeah, that's not the, the greatest incentives, but I mean, that's what you're left with, right? Isn't that all you can offer somebody even once you've told them they're never getting out? Yeah. Yep. TV, take away that's, TV. Yeah, that's about it. You know, it's like no commissary. It's like you, like you can't buy Doritos. I mean, like that's <laughs> that's that's not as good as you can go home. Because I feel like that's an incentive. Even to not if kill like, going home as far in the future, but that seems like that's how you get somebody to behave. It's like, hey man, if you can do it in 20 years, you could go home. This might be to in the weeds, but I did want to talk to Gary about the Batson violations by the prosecutor. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's also talk about the, the jury selection in general. This is like jury selection. I, I'm glad you brought this up because I was I actually laughed at the jury selection. You know what made me laugh first is when he said they were sending out 150 questionnaires. I literally laughed out loud just because you bring 100 <laughs> people in to pick a jury trial for like someone who's like who's stealing from their boss. <laughs> you might have to get through a hundred people to get, to get 14 or 15 jurors because you need some alternates in case somebody passes out or something. You might need a hundred to get to 15 just on like the most boring of criminal charges. Mm -hmm. the, the fact that they called 150 people for a death penalty case made me laugh. Just because like in context, recently uh, there was a death penalty case in my hometown where a guy murdered his family and they sent out, I think they sent like a thousand or twelve hundred questionnaires. Wow. To try and get a jury. Because a lot of people, you can't get once you start talking about death penalty, you need a death qualified jury. So you have to start off with only people who are willing to eventually give someone the death penalty if you prove it. So you get rid of a lot of people like right. Gary, you also run into the issue where everybody in the town would have known each other. How many people would not have had some relationship to this case? So yeah. Like 10 of those people are, are Billy Joe's cousin. You know, because like the first thing they say is, raise your hand if any of these names are familiar. When they read out the name, you know, the deceit and Billy Joe, you know, racist and Jimmy John racist. They're like, oh yeah, like half the hands would have gone up. It's like, how do you know? Oh, I work with them. I went to high school with them. I was on the baseball team with them. That's my cousin. They're like, all right, we're going to excuse these people. You would have had to call half the people in this county to get a jury. And... A Batson violation is when you are purposefully removing somebody because of gender, color. And so how would it have worked in real life is when you want to get rid of a juror, you ask the judge to strike a juror and everybody gets so many strikes. I don't remember how many it is in New York. To I can't, get, it varies by the severity of the crime. But if you say, I moved to strike a black juror, the defense attorney is supposed to ask why especially in a case like this, and really challenge, you're not just striking black jurors for no reason. Maybe in Mississippi, I don't know. You know this, this is what happens. Generally, a Batson challenge, you have to establish a pattern of discrimination. Although that's not technically a requirement, you can be Batson challenged for one juror, but generally there's like a pattern. That's the way it works. You know, you'd have to say, oh, I couldn't help but notice that 
Mr. Prosecutor has struck, let's see, out of his 12 challenges, he struck five black jurors in a row without any real reason for it. And then like, and then he would be required to give basically not just a superficial excuse for why you did it. Right. And like, and also this is one of those things where, like I said, I understand that you have to fast forward in the movie, but even with the fast forwarding, the defense attorney should at least say, hey, Judge Noose, I can't help but notice that the prosecutor's getting rid of all the black jurors. I'm going to need an excuse for that. And there's a voir dire part of jury selection where either the lawyers or the judges are allowed to ask questions of the jury, which is often the most difficult part of jury selection. In the federal system, the judge asks all the questions. In New York, it's blended. The judge asks some, then the parties ask some. Yeah. Nobody asked any questions to the jurors, which actually probably been an entertaining part of the movie to find out, like... Yeah, what a bit. I mean, I mean the movie's already pretty long. Yeah. I mean, it was two and a half hours. It was 226. Hours. It being so long gave him time to really have, like, long tangents. The whole kidnapping of, of Rourke thing. Like, what, what do we need that? Like, what the hell was the point of that? How did that look Yeah, that was... They didn't even talk about it. That was a complete, like, non sequitur. Yeah, they didn't was even useless. talk about it during the trial. They were like, where's Rourke? I don't know. <laughs> yeah like isn't that crazy like she she went from being an important part of the defense team on day one to like day two disappearing and like it wasn't even notable but that was a complete blind alley right they could have cut that whole like 10 minutes out of the movie and nobody would have missed it like what was yeah the point that, that would have been a great That's... time to give to the jury selection which really would have enhanced the racial component to the movie yeah exactly and i just have to say as a practical matter I am a firm believer that the jury selection is the most important part of a trial. And they alluded to that, which is sort of funny because they didn't spend any time on it. But he said, you know, if you pick the right jury, he's, he's getting convicted. Yeah. Well, Joel Schumacher as a director in general always focuses on, I mean, throughout most of his movies, he has very cartoonish characters while still being really entertaining with high octane emotion. I mean, I would say his best movie is Lost Boys, which is a little silly, but it's just such a great Is hybrid. Is that the vampire movie? Yeah, yeah, with Kiefer Sutherland's in it. It's just like a great vampire movie. It's like if you combine Dracula with The Goonies. It just had like a charm to it. I was thinking about it, right? The guy showing up to bomb his house, that was kind of useless. I could have got rid of that. You know, it's like there's definitely some stuff where you go, look, I don't really know what the point of this was. Well, that's why I go to the cartoonishness of the KKK. Like, again, I can't speak to this history. But it just felt like they were trying to make the KKK operate like the mafia does versus just terrorizing the black community at large. Like there was actually very little terrorizing outside of the awful the, – the, the KKK was primarily attacking white sympathizers. Yeah. They barely attacked any outside of the awful you know, crime. They didn't harass any more of the black community. Well, remember, those guys weren't even the Klan. It's actually sort of funny. They, they, in some ways, they sort of made the Keith Sutherland character joining the Klan almost sympathetic because he's like, you know, there's no Klan around here. The next thing you know, we got guys jumping out of closets with machine guns murdering <laughs> good white men right in the middle of the courthouse. You kind of see where he's coming from. You're like, well, you know, I'm not saying he's right, but I can understand. <laughs> yeah, like the, the idea that the justice system has gone wrong with like you know people in custody are getting by the way so there were so many things that like crimes that happened where there's so little discussion of them and no one even discussed the fact that like where the hell did carl lee get a machine gun yeah an, M an m16 <laughs> or how about the fact a fully auto m16 like, i mean you can't just go buy a fully auto m16 did he smuggle it back from vietnam like how does he have a full auto m16 
uh, or how about the fact that they they lit the Grand Wizard on fire, or <laughs> yeah, nobody was talking about murdered the Grand Wizard got killed at the outside the courthouse and it's kind of like well you know those are the words, a year prior Joel Schumacher directed Batman Forever and then eventually went on to do Batman and Robin I mean you know. This is just this is what you get. Yeah. Before <laughs> before we go though, there is two really fundamental questions that I had to ask the the two of you. Number one, is this a white savior movie? No, I would say no because you know what? In some ways, it's actually sneakily the black savior movie because Carl Lee saves himself. Because if you mm. look at it, he basically puts the battery in the guy's back and says, like, you're here because I need a white man to get this job done. Like, they keep making Carl Lee out to be the mastermind. Like, he gets the money yeah. for him by shaking down the crooked preacher and, into, and like, all in the, the sweaty NAACP man. So actually, Carl Lee is sort of his own savior in this. Like, he's really the protagonist. And he's the reason they win. Like he motivates McConaughey to absolutely pull out. Like Jake was gonna give up. Yeah, was gonna he was gonna ask yeah. for a deal. You he's know. like Kaiser Sose. Like you like if you think about it, like they <laughs> like Carl is kind of like quietly Kaiser Sose. You go, well, I thought this guy was a simple factory working murderer, but actually he's a brilliant strategist. <laughs> the second question that I had was, what did you two think about Jake Brigant's closing argument? I think it would have drawn a lot of objections. <laughs> yes, it would have in real life. Like the judge said, this is not about the rape. I have a layman lawyer question right before I give my take on it. But I was under the impression that with closing arguments, you could say whatever you want. No, no. But, but that's basically like I think that is what Hollywood has taught us. Yeah. So there's a gentlemanly rule that says we typically won't object Unless something crazy starts to happen. And something crazy definitely happened. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if, here's the thing. I would make that exact argument if I thought that like both the judge and the defense attorney were like asleep. My take on it, like outside of uh, the legal reality of the circumstance, you know, as the type of white dude I am, I don't need to be reminded that like, it's almost like the sentiment that, is insinuated that needs to be declared to these people. It's implying that they need to be reminded that black people are human. And it's like, I don't need to be reminded of that. Like me closing my eyes and picturing his brutality. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I know it's a very easy thing for me to say, but it's just like, it didn't make a difference to me. To a white guy in Mississippi. Because, all right, this is the thing you have to remember, right? Once you're done making your arguments, it's over. There's nothing else you can do. It is all in the hands of these essential strangers to decide on this super important issue. So you would hate to think that you cut a corner or that you left something out. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not questioning the sentiment. You know what I'm questioning, I guess, is Joel Schumacher or John Grisham, whatever. I don't know if it's like if that part was pretty verbatim of the book or not. They made a choice to make that the focal argument. And I, I just think it's, it seems obvious to me, but is this movie in the position of trying to change minds or is this just an entertaining flick for people who already get it? I think it begs, you know it, it, no, it, it begs a question, right? This is not a movie. This is often a discussion that we have in the reverse when we talk about white movies. This is not a sensational movie if everybody in this movie is white. Like, of I've, course, no race is, is required to tell this story. Yes. Okay. And yes. the only way you see Carly going home in Mississippi anyway, is if you can convince the jury that they need to find themselves 
in that story. In that story. Yeah. And that's and I think in Jersey, see, I, look, there's parts of Jersey where I think Carl Lee gets convicted. Yeah. The deputy was kind of the hero. Like I don't think I remember that from my first viewing of it. The deputy giving him the I wouldn't convict him, like yelling over the judge. Yeah. <laughs> Turn him loose. Might have been the real yeah. hero of the movie. Yeah. Turn him loose. I, I love that actor too. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Like I think that you have to paint a picture where Carl Lee is doing what any upstanding white man would have done for a white girl. And not just a white man, but a white man from Mississippi. Because that's the other thing you have to consider. Like the, like the people, and this is something that's like been the history of the South for a long time. They are way more shooty and murdery in the South than in the North. So that's even more likely, like, you know, this is the land of the blood feud where like, look, if you'd have done that to any of those guys' daughters, they would have come out of the closet shooting too. And so they were already primed for it. And then I think the deputy really, and this is like I said, I didn't realize as a teenager, but as an adult, thinking about it, the deputy really gave him permission. Like, well, hell, even another white man says you ought to let him go. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. Well, and it, it speaks to the reality too, that we're like, we've talked about this ad nauseum on the podcast about representation in the media and and like you know off mic we were talking about how lovecraft country and things like jordan peele does seeing yourself in these venues is important so i i understand that but to me it's like i never had to climb the emotional or intellectual hurdle that black people are like me but like again i'm I'm not that let me ask you this question then jay do you convict carly haley or does he go home he goes home i get it but that might bring you to another conclusion. Like you might be saying like, look, well, if anybody did this, you know, it's like kind of what uh, Gary was saying with Donald Sutherland's character, Lucian, who says like, either way, justice is technically being served and he's right. But it's like, Carl really needs a win here. And I'm all right with giving him a W. (laughs) (laughs) But in the end, it was enjoyable. It was a little bit too long. They definitely left lots of unpulled threads. Fucking John Grisham, man. (laughs) What I think we're saying here is that this sweater, this whole time, was really a fishnet top piece. The holes in it are plentiful. All right. Um, I think we did it. Again, drop us a line at bostonnj at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. And if you feel so inclined, subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, folks. Now imagine she's white. Stay curious. Love you, Tayo.